Now today, uh, I want to talk to you about something that's very important. Um, first of all, Christianity is the only belief system in the world where the God, the creator of that belief system, left heaven, left the, the glory of heaven, and came down to earth to rescue humans. Every other uh, belief system has some set of pillars, maybe five pillars or 12 pillars, or if you're in the Jewish religion, 613 laws that you have to, to uh, fulfill in order to please God. Christianity is the only one where God says they can't do it. I'm going to come and I'm going to help them uh, out myself. So the difference in Christianity, we've talked about this through our starting point series, but it's this, um, do versus done. Those are the things that you need to understand. In every other belief system, there's a list of to-dos. I do this and there's a list of to-don'ts. I don't do this. And if I do enough on the to-do list and I avoid enough of the to-don't list, then God looks at me, he winks at my sins and he goes, hey, you're a pretty good person, come on into heaven. But according to the Bible, pretty good people don't get into heaven, only perfect people get into heaven. And so since I'm not perfect, no one other than Jesus Christ is perfect. The only way you can get into heaven is on his ticket. So Christianity is spelled done. Jesus has done everything that needed to be done. His, and, and we base our life after death death on what he did on the cross. He died once for all as a payment for our sins. He rose the third day and, and death could not conquer him ever again. Nothing I can ever do can make me clean. Um, so instead of trying to earn my way into heaven, the only way I can get there is to bow down in complete humility and to surrender myself to Jesus Christ and say, please forgive me. Please be the forgiver and leader of my life. And then I get into heaven based on what he's done. So the difference is religion has do's and don'ts. In, in Christianity, we said this a few weeks ago, it's what Jesus has already to done. Not what you to do, not what you to don't, it's what Jesus already has to done. He made one way, a singular way to heaven, and the only way to get to heaven is to choose to get on that way. So I want to pick up the story today as Jesus is hanging on the cross, and I want to talk about uh, what he said. He is paying the price for humans. The price was extremely high. He was beaten beyond recognition. He was whipped with what is called a cat of nine tails, which means probably he had bone and muscle. He probably even had vital organs hanging out of his body while he's hanging on the cross. He had already been hit in the face repeatedly. He'd been spat upon. He'd been mocked. And what made it all worse is that Jesus was innocent. And so on your listening guide, if you're following along on your app, and just in case you haven't got that, you can text NL. CCP space a app app to seven seven nine seven seven. You can get that app. You can get the uh, the listening guide on each week. And by the way, we're going to continue. Even if we are to open up the services our, our campus here, we're not going to hand out um, listening guides in the foreseeable future until we get through all of this COVID trash and we figure out what's going on. So we want you to be on your app, and that way it's all on you. It's not on us. If you get sick. So as man did his worst, God was at his best. Humans showed what they were really like by killing, torturing an innocent man. Now we pick up the story in John chapter 19, verse 28. And here's what, what John tells us about this story. Jesus is hanging on the cross about to die later, knowing that all was now completed. Say the word completed. Even if you're home, play along, freak your kids out and talk to the preacher on the TV or on the computer screen. Later, knowing that all was now completed and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. He's about to die, but there's one prophecy that had not been fulfilled yet. In the Old Testament, we get all kinds of prophecies about what the Messiah would say and what the Messiah would do. Jesus had said and done all of them except this one thing. 
And it was this, this very obscure prophecy about the Messiah would be offered vinegar to drink. Uh, Jesus now, he was in full control of his, his faculties on the cross. He knew he was about to die. He knew there was one prophecy left. And he says, I'm thirsty. Look what happens next in John 19, verse 29. A jar of wine vinegar was there. So they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. Now, why was there, why was there a jar of sour wine there? Well, you have to understand crucifixion was designed to humiliate and torture the person who was dying. They didn't want the person to die from thirst. They wanted them to last a little bit longer so they could play their, their sadistic game a little bit longer, but they didn't want the, the person to be comforted by anything wet coming into their throat. So they would give this nasty, vinegar to prolong a person's life and this would add to their discomfort so i brought with me today some nasty apple cider vinegar it's called raw unfiltered as if cooked and filtered would be better the reason i know what this stuff is is because Janie and I decided to do one of those little fad diets, you know, with the keto pills. And we took the, the 30 milliliters of nasty apple cider vinegar. You're supposed to take this. It's supposed to put you into ketosis sooner. And so we tried this. The first day I said, Janie, how did you take your two tablespoons, your 30 milliliters? She said, I just slammed it down. And so I said, okay, I'll do that. Just get it over with. So I poured this trash in there and I slammed it down. My eyes started watering. I breathed fire and there was green smoke coming out of my mouth because this stuff is so bad. And I thought, I'll never do that again. I thought, well, I'm going to do this diet thing though. So the next day I said, I am not doing 30 milliliters of this trash ever again. Janie said, diluted in water as if that would make it better. So I put it in a big old tall glass of water. I stirred it, stirred it, held my nose, drank it while it's going down. You're going, this is not so bad. As soon as you finish green smoke comes out of your mouth again, because this stuff sucks. They gave it to Jesus to torture him. They knew very well that it would not satisfy any thirst. But Jesus had a different purpose. He was drinking this to fulfill the last prophecy that had not been fulfilled. And then look what happens. This is how we know that this was the last prophecy because in John 19, 30, he says this. When he'd received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. And so I want to say to you, these are the three, I, I believe, three of the most incredible, if not the most incredible words in all of scripture. It is finished. Now, I don't think Jesus at all said it in a wimpy way. I think he pulled a William Wallace, you know, freedom type thing. It is finished. But you need to understand, he didn't say it in English. So the word that we get it is finished from is this, this Greek word called tetelestai. That's a fun word to say. Come on, Tammy, say it for me. Thank you. Tetelestai. You know you three, you want to say it? Say it for me. Thank you so much. Now, here's what it means. To end, to complete, or to discharge a debt. So I think Jesus is hanging on the cross. He drank the nasty sour vinegar, and he goes, Tetelestai! And I believe the heavens shook because they knew what he was saying when he said, It is finished. I completed the task. I paid the debt. There's nothing left to do. I'm coming home. 
And now you need to understand this word had such depth in Jewish society. It could be used when a servant returns home to his master and he says, master, you gave me a job to do to tell a sty. It is finished. It could be used when a merchant um, declares that you have paid off a debt. And by the way, every time you come out of Walmart, if you pay for your stuff, you get a little piece of paper that says to tell a sty. You paid that. And I, you better believe every time I walk out of that store, I have my to tell a sty receipt because I'm going to tell people. Ever since we could pay at the pump for gasoline, I have gotten a receipt because I'm not driving off without my Tetelestai receipt to prove to somebody, I didn't rip your gasoline off, I bought it. Tetelestai, when you've paid off a debt and it can be used and it was used whenever you brought a perfect lamb to the priest and the priest would declare that lamb perfect, he would say, Tetelestai, you no longer are being held guilty for your sins because this lamb is perfect and this lamb will die on your behalf. That's the word that Jesus said on the cross, Tetelestai. Your work, God, is complete and the world will never be the same. Now, you may be saying, what did he finish? Well, let's be specific. In the Old Testament, there are over 100 major prophecies about what the Messiah would say and what he would do. They were written down for us hundreds of years before the Messiah ever walked the planet. Let me give you just a little bit of these, just a few of these. Now, you need to understand, if we could have fingerprint evidence... The prophecies in the Old Testament are like fingerprint evidence for the Messiah. And if you see someone who fulfills these prophecies, then you can say that's the unique thing, fingerprint of the Messiah. Let me give you just a few. Here's the first one. Amos 8, 9. It says, I will make the sun go down at noon and I will turn daylight into darkness. Fulfilled in Matthew 27, 45. And by the way, the wonderful thing about video is if you want to go back and study these later, you can rewind it. These are on our website. They're on Facebook. You'll be able to see these if you want to go back and study these for yourself. Second one is Isaiah 53, three, Isaiah, 700 years before the Messiah walked the planet said he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. It was fulfilled in John uh, chapter one, verses 10 and 11, 745 and 748. Psalm 41.9 says, even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread has turned against me. Isn't that oddly specific that, that the psalmist said this about Judas and it's fulfilled in, in Luke 22, 3 and 4, also contained in John chapter 13, verse 18. Back to Isaiah, he said, he didn't even look human, a ruined face, disfigured past recognition. He was beaten so badly that was fulfilled in Matthew 27, 26. Isaiah 50, verse six, I let them beat my back and pull out my beard. I didn't turn aside when they insulted me and spit in my face. That was fulfilled in Matthew 27, 30. Isaiah 53, five says he was wounded and crushed because of our sins. That was fulfilled in Matthew 27, 26. Psalm 22, seven, the good news version says, all who see me make fun of me, insults pour from their mouth, not one or two, they pour from their mouths. That was fulfilled in Matthew 27, 31. Zechariah 13, seven says, strike down the shepherd, capital S, talking about the Messiah and the sheep will scatter. And that was fulfilled in Matthew 26, 56, when all of Jesus' disciples ran away in fear. Isaiah 53, 12, he bore the sins of many, the Messiah, and he pled with God for sinners. And he did that. It was fulfilled in Luke chapter 23, verse 34. Isaiah 53, 12, he willingly gave his life and shared the fate of evil men. So he was, he was crucified 
uh, amongst sinners that was fulfilled in Matthew 27, 38. Psalm 22, 18, they took my clothes and they gambled for them, fulfilled in John 19, 23 and 24. Psalm 34, 20 says, not one of his bones were broken. This is remarkable that this was hundreds of years before Jesus died on the cross and it was fulfilled in John 19, 33. Over a hundred prophecies that Jesus could say to tell us, it is finished. Now, Jesus finished all of these prophecies of the Old Testament. And you might be thinking, big deal. And you'd be right. It is a very big deal. Let me show you just that. Now, I'm going to show you a chart of seven prophecies, not even 100 plus, seven. And, and if you're a math nerd, you're going to love this because we're going to talk about the probabilities of one person fulfilling these types of, of uh, messianic prophecies. Here's the first one. Jesus would be a descendant of David. That's 10 to the fourth power. So that would be um, one in 10,000. That's not bad odds. Number two, Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. This one goes a little higher, 10 to the fifth power, one in 100,000. Bethlehem was a very obscure place. For the Messiah to be born there was remarkable. Number three, Jesus would cleanse the temple. This is uh, 10 to the fifth power, one in 100,000. Um, number four, Jesus would present himself as a king riding on a donkey as he comes in on the triumphal entry. This is 10 to the sixth uh, I'm sorry, this is still, yeah, 10 to the sixth power, one in a million. Number five, Jesus would be betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver. Oddly specific, 10 to the sixth, one in a million. Number seven, this one blew my mind. I just finished studying Daniel in the Old Testament. And it says, Jesus would first present himself as king 173,880 days from the decree of Artaxerxes to rebuild Jerusalem. Go back and rebuild. Daniel, uh, in his prophecy, the angel tells him this, 173,880 days. If you go and do the math, now you have to use Jewish calendar, not the Gregorian calendar that we use, because I used it and I was like, totally confused. Their Jewish calendar was 360 days, not 360. 65 days. If you go to Daniel chapter 9, verse 25, and you multiply it out, you'll find out with 360 days for a year, 173,880 days from that decree is when Jesus presented himself as king in Jerusalem. The chances of that happening are 10 to the 6, which is one in a million. Now, if you combine the, the, the statistics of all seven of those prophecies, not 100 plus, the seven I just mentioned, here's the probability that one person might fulfill it. And here it is. 10 to the 38th power. Let's say it out loud. One in a hundred billion, 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 billion. One in a hundred billion, 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 billion. You cannot comprehend that number. Just put all those numbers out there. Just go and try to say it. You can't do it. The fact that Jesus fulfilled all of these prophecies, just these seven, much less the other hundred, that is a unique thumbprint that no one else could put on history. Jesus did it. That's what he meant by to tell us die. Now, are you beginning to understand the significance of those three words? It is finished. Jesus finished them all. He purchased freedom for, for guilty sinners, and he fulfilled all of the Old Testament prophecies, everyone about the Messiah. And then he looks up and he says, Dad, I'm done. I'm coming home. The greatest news ever is Jesus finished the work. And if you're a, a child of his, then, then you have the receipt. You've been adopted into his family. And you get to go be with him forever. The great news, Jesus finished the work. Here's the bad news. Your work isn't finished. If you're still breathing, God has something for you to do. So complete this sentence on your listening guide. I have unfinished business. God's not done. In Revelation chapter 3, 
Jesus is speaking to specific churches, but it's a, it's a message for all churches. And here's what he says to this, this first church in, in Revelation 3, verses 1 and 2. He says, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. And then, then look at this. For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. So I want you to say out loud, my deeds are unfinished. In June of this year, we will celebrate 18 years that New Life Community Church has been a church, our 18-year anniversary. I was thinking back that. I wish I had some pictures. I'll have to bring them up in, in the weeks ahead and show you. Caleb was seven. Rachel was five. Hannah was two. We were in the old, what's now the Verizon building. It was the old Rounders building at that time. Still had a 57 Chevy up there from when it was, um, what was it? Tammy's 57 heaven. Yes, that was. So one of our first t-shirts said, we don't have a steeple. We have a 57 Chevy as, as the marking place of our church. I can't believe what all God has done in the past 18 years. People told us it couldn't be done. People told me you shouldn't build this church in, in Palestine. I had one pastor say to my face, I will support you going anywhere in the world, any other town in the world to start New Life Community Church, but I will not support you in Palestine, Texas, because he felt threatened by what we were going to do. And I told him, I said, dude, we're not after your church people. We're after lost people. That pastor's long gone, but for 18 years, God has been doing some stuff and I can't believe what all he's done, but I don't think he's finished. I don't think we've even started. The rest of my life is to build this church and then pass it on to others who will build this church until Jesus comes back, until that trumpet sounds and we're all taken to be with him in heaven. That's my unfinished business is to finish the business of this church. What is your unfinished business? Because you have some, and I'm not talking about whatever you decide. I'm saying God has something for every one of his followers to do. And God has told some of you to do something and you have not done it. I want you to write it down. It could be God, God has asked you to forgive someone and you're refusing to forgive. That's not an option. You don't have to pray about forgiveness. You're, you have to forgive. Trust is a different issue. We'll talk about that another time. But it may be he's called you to forgive someone. It could be God has called you to go to college, to finish college. When, when I was uh, in college, Janie Gardner, who is now Janie Washburn, was on a, a youth, um, youth pastor search committee and she wanted me to be her youth minister. But I felt like God had called me to be at Baylor and to be at the church I was at. So I said no. And she kept saying no to every youth minister who wasn't named Doug Washburn. And I told her later, I said, had I been your youth minister, we never would have gotten married because I would never have considered that. Um, so my, my unfinished business when I was at Baylor was to finish Baylor and then to eventually go to seminary. Could be to get out of debt or to tithe or to go on a mission trip. You know God has called you to do something and you have refused to do it. What is it? Take a moment. I want you to write it down. What is it that God has put in your heart that you're supposed to do? You're supposed to finish. Now, I want you to think about this. <clears throat> Lots of people start well. Doesn't matter how well you start. Very few people finish well. So I want to talk today about how you can be like Jesus, how you can be a finisher, how you can, when you stand before God, you can say to him, to tell us die. And you can say it like I think Jesus did, to tell us die. That's how I want to come in. I don't know if he'll let me do that, but that's what I want to do. So how do you do that? Number one, 
You got to make a commitment. You will become what you are committed to. If you want to have a good marriage, you got to be committed to your marriage. You want to have a good church, you need, you need a few people who are going to be committed to the church. You need at least 12 is what Jesus started the whole Christian church with. Um, well, I guess 11, and then he brought another one in. But, but you need some people that are committed to something. Here's what Paul said. Look what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, 11. He says, now finish the work you started. And then look at this. I love this phrase. Then your doing will be equal to your wanting to do. What does that mean? Wanting to do something is not the same as doing it. And here's what I got on your listening guide. Too many people are eager to do something. Oh, I want to do something. And they're willing to do nothing. It's why every church I've been in, 20% of the people do 80% of the work. 20% of the people give 80% of the money because some people take this thing seriously and some people don't. And I'm going to ask you over and over, what is it God's asked you to do? Well, God asked me to do this. Well, have you done it? No. Did you pray about it? Yes. When did you pray about it? 12 years ago. Really? Have you prayed about it recently? Well, no, because God didn't answer my prayer. What if God answered your prayer and you said, I'm not about to do that. God said, I want you to do this. And you said, no. Two words that cannot be a part of your vocabulary if you're a Christ follower is no, Lord. You don't get to say that. And, and I heard somebody say one time that the Holy Spirit will not waste his time with a non-praying person. If you pray and don't do what God tells you to do, why would God tell you anything else? You're supposed to go back and do the last thing God told you to do. I don't know if you remember um, the story in history of Hernando Cortez sailed from Spain with 11 ships and he lands um, on Veric, um, where is it? Veracruz, yes. 700 men, he's gonna go discover the new world and all of these 700 men on these 11 ships were so excited. We're gonna go do something for the king. We're gonna make our names famous. We're probably gonna get some treasure. They were so excited. When they landed in Veracruz, their wanting to do was not equal to their doing. They soon discovered they had problems, like they hated the food, like the natives wanted to chop off their heads. That's a problem. They had all kinds of problems, and they said, I don't want to be here anymore. Let's go back home. When, when uh, Cortez heard about it, you know what he did? He burned the ships. All of a sudden, when they no longer had a way to escape, guess what it did to their commitment? Their commitment went to steroid levels because they had no option to get away. Commitment is taking your passionate desire for something, drawing a line in the sand, stepping across that line, and there is no turning back. That's how you become a finisher. That's how you become like Jesus, so you can say, tetelestai. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was battling. I think we, we forget this sometimes. He was battling over what he knew was about to happen. And the Bible tells us he was under such intense stress by the way, I just finished the book, The Case for Christ, where a medical doctor display, uh, uh, explains that this is a possibility, where he was so distressed when he was praying that he was sweating drops of sweat that contained little drops of blood in them. He literally was sweating drops of blood, and he says this to his father in Luke twenty-two forty-two: Father, if you are willing, please take this cup of horror. I'd never seen this phrase. This is in the Living Bible. Please take this cup of horror from me. He was fully aware of what he was about to do. And then he says this, but I want your will, not mine. By all means, when you're in, in a difficult situation, pour out your heart to God. Read the Psalms. When I went through a really difficult time, God had me in the book of Psalms. And every day, half of my prayer page was some Psalm where David was crying out to God. 
But at the end of that, you don't get to whine and complain. We're supposed to pray the most difficult prayer ever. And it's, I want your will, not mine. God, I want your will, not mine. That's how you become like Jesus. That's how you become a finisher. So you make a commitment. Second step is take the next step. We talked about this two weeks ago um, on Easter. When my children were little, when we first started this church, we had no money to go on vacation. So we went on vacations with my parents. They paid for us to go. That's the way it worked. Mom loved to go to Red River, New Mexico. And we would stay in this little condo right across the street from the main face where you would go skiing. Now, Red River is not a huge ski area, but it's still a mountain. And the main face right on the front where you get on the ski lift is a black diamond. If you've ever been skiing, that's the hardest one there. And so when we would go, we would decide we were going to walk up this hill. Now, the cool thing was um, you could pay and you could ride up the ski lift, go up the hill and then ride back down. You could go up and, and walk back down. But if you walked up the hill, your reward, not only seeing this spectacular thing um, in the New Mexico mountains, but was you got a free ride on the ski lift back down the hill. And so we decided to do this. So my kids are fairly little. And the first day we walk up the black diamond, it is hot. We get to the top of the black diamond. We're breathing hard. We're thinking we have made a mistake. But then I had been skiing here and I knew there was this little green slope. Green is the easiest. You go around the back of the mountain and it gets really quiet. So the front of the mountain's facing the city, all of the places, the cars, you can hear them going up and down the main drag. But as soon as you walk around the back, it gets eerily quiet and it got very cool because the sun was already on, on the other side of the mountain. And so as we come around there, you know, I'm, I'm walking, Caleb's with me, the girls are kind of in the middle. And then I noticed Janie's at the back dragging. She's kind of tired and, and she, I didn't know it at the time, but she's thinking, if I were a bear, this is where I would hang out. I would be right here. And so she said to the Lord, Lord, if there's a bear, I will sacrifice myself for my children. Now, I didn't know all of that at the time. She tells me later. We didn't sacrifice that day. We kept going one step at a time all the way to the top of the mountain. We got on the ski lift, came back down. It was this spectacular deal, one step at a time. Did you know that one step at a time is actually a biblical concept? And it comes from Psalm 119, 105. Again, this is the Living Bible. Your words are a flashlight. I, I chose this because of the way it says it. Your words are a flashlight to light the path ahead of me to keep me from stumbling. A flashlight only illuminates a certain area. It's like, you're, it's like when you come out of here on a, on a night where it's dark and you make the U-turn on 155 to go back to town, do your headlights illumine the bridge down on, on loop 256? No, they're not designed for that. A flashlight isn't either. God's word is is a flashlight to keep you from stumbling. And here's the thing, if you are stumbling, it means you're not paying attention to God's word. It means you don't have the flashlight out. You don't have batteries in it. You're not using that because God gives us enough light to make it through one day without stumbling. I'm gonna say that again, because I liked it whether you did or not. God gives you enough light for one day to keep from stumbling. So every time I stumble, it means I'm not using the light of God's word. It's one of the things that I really like this one step concept that I like about Celebrate Recovery or I like about the landing. It's a Christ-centered 12-step program that you take one step at a time. And before you know it, if you work through the process, you get to step 12 and God has taken you someplace emotionally that you've never been before and you would not have gone without taking those 12 steps. So my question to you is, what is your next step? 
And don't think for a second, God gives you all of the map. He gives you enough light for one day. So what do you need to do today to either get on your journey with God or get back on your journey with God? Is it to write a letter to someone? Now, let me just throw this out here. I've done this before where I wrote a letter to someone and I knew that, that what I said in that letter was not going to be well received. So I went out and prayed to God and then I burned it. Never sent that letter. So some of you need to ask someone else who has some wisdom if I should send this letter and then listen to their wisdom. God may provide that light for your one day through that friend of yours who, has, who is not emotionally tied into whatever you're talking about. But maybe God wants you to forgive and you just haven't done it. I want you to write that down. Is it to tear up credit cards? If, you, if, if God is telling you to do that, you better write it down. You better do it. Is it to get a budget? Is it to make a phone call? Is it to go to someone and ask for forgiveness or talk to them? Maybe your next step is to surrender your, your life to Christ for the first time. I've never done that. And I want to pray and I want to receive this Christ who, who couldn't possibly be an imposter because he fits the unique thumbprint of the Messiah. Here's what I want to leave you with today. A couple of things, a verse, and then I'm going to show you a video. Philippians 1, 6 says this. I pray this verse all the time for my children. God is the one who began the good work in you, and I'm certain that he won't stop before it is complete on the day that Christ Jesus returns. God will complete the work. I say, God, complete the work in Caleb, complete the work in, in Hannah, complete the work in, in Rachel and Matt, and in, in Hanny's the best. That's what she's put her name in my phone is Hanny's the best. God, complete the work in my children. You said you would complete it. God, I can't do it. I want you to complete it. The thing you need to understand, the reason we need the church and the reason we're looking forward to the day we can open back up the church is because you cannot, you cannot do this walk on your own. You need other people around you, but you need a commitment and you need um, uh, the, the ability to follow through on that commitment. And then you need a group of like-minded individuals who will come around you and support you to drive home this idea of finishing I, uh, I got a video of the most famous last place finisher in Olympic history because early on in, in the race, in the marathon, the very last race of, of the Olympics, 1960 in, in um, uh, Mexico, this young man, John Stephen Aquari, falls down early in the race, early in the 26 miles, dislocates his kneecap and badly injures his shoulder and here's how he finished the race that day. At the 1968 Mexico City Marathon, three men earned the right to stand on the victory platform, the winners of the gold, silver, and bronze Olympic medals. But for some, the reward is a personal one, the knowledge that they finished what they set out to do. <clears throat> A little over an hour after the winner of the marathon crossed the finish line, John Stephen Aquari of Tanzania approaches the stadium, the last man to complete the journey. A voice calls from within to go on, and so he goes on.
afterwards it was written, Today we have seen a young African runner who symbolizes the finest in the human spirit. A performance that gives true dignity to sport. A performance that lifts sport out of the category of grown men playing at games. A performance that gives meaning to the word courage. Perhaps the words of John Stephen Aquari epitomize all that is right in the human spirit. When asked why he did not quit, he said simply, My country did not send me 5,000 miles to start the race. They sent me 5,000 miles to finish the race. The light in this Tanzanian runner is a beacon to us all. To endure to the end. To finish the race. However long and hard the road. 1968 Olympics. I want to be like that guy. 50 years later, they invited him to come back when they were going to have a, a marathon in, in Mexico City. And people still remember his name. I'll be honest with you, I have no clue who won the gold medal. But about 20-something years ago, I read this story about John Stephen Aquari, and I've never forgotten. The Christian life is called a race. And I'm not supposed to run Tammy's race. I'm not supposed to run Janie or Caleb's race or Gary or Hannah's race or Keith's race. I'm supposed to run my race so that when I stand before my heavenly father, I can say, to tell us that. And if I do it, that's when I hear the most incredible words. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Great job. You finished your race. Now enjoy all of my rewards is what, what God is going to say to us. And I got to be honest with you, there's times, especially when there's five people in the room and I see your pictures and, and I miss you guys. You know, you, some of y'all have not been checking on your, your outgoing friends because we, we need people. We draw energy from people. But I don't, I don't do it for the applause of men. I do it so that my heavenly father can say, great job. Now enjoy your rest. More than ever, our world needs finishers as as we get to the point that that we figure this virus out and we open back up the doors my question is what would you you have learned from this my favorite seminary professor said suffering drastically reduces your wish list and i pray to god that some of you have figured out during this whole thing some of the stuff that you were killing yourself over is just not worth it. There's only a few things that really matter and you discover those when someone's dying of cancer or when someone is, is in a car wreck, you discover what's really important. And, and I've discovered that ESPN is just not as important as I once thought it was. I've discovered that, that movies and things like that, movie stars, they're, they're really not that big a deal. What matters to me is my spiritual family, my physical family, and passing on what really matters to the next generation. Let's be finishers. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your love and your grace. 
I thank you that even on the cross, especially on the cross, you showed us how to finish well. God, some of us have been beaten down. Some of us have been frightened by this this coronavirus thing. You've never once flinched. Nothing happens to us that, that takes you by surprise. So right now today, God, I pray that you raise up a group of finishers. We need men in this church who will be men of God, who will, who will sacrifice and love their wives like Christ loved the church. We need women who will respect their husbands, just like we're told in, in Ephesians chapter five. They will respect them unconditionally so that together, if you call them into marriage, they become the couple and the individuals that you've called them to be. And then Lord, build this church on people who say, come hell or high water, I'm gonna help build the church of Christ until Christ returns. We pray this in the name of Jesus, amen. Ask you to remember to to give uh, now more than ever. It is important. If our church is involved in, in changing lives, we need you to make a commitment to give on a regular basis, not because we need it, but because you're telling God he's in charge and you want to be a part of that. You can give online. Um, if We actually have one person who pre-sprayed his check before I went by and checked picked it up. I told Teresa that, but I'm willing to bet Teresa sprayed it again because I touched it in between. If you need to do that, we will make special arrangements arrangements when you're here on uh, Mother's Day. If you want to give, we'll have one place where you can give. Uh, Again, be sure and bring your chairs and your umbrellas and and whatever you need that day. It is going to be a celebration as we celebrate what moms have done. I believe God has given me a, a message for moms, and so we want you to be here. In the meantime, we'll see you right here next week, same time, same place.